Oh, hello, uh, my friends in Mafra. Uh, God bless you. I hope um, you're going okay. Uh, you're a bit further from the action than some of us are, so I hope uh, the COVID-19 is leaving you well alone. Um, and uh, we are all looking forward to the day we can meet together again, but until then, we'll keep doing it by video, I guess. And uh, God's word never fails, so we'll just keep being uh, reading it and believing it and being encouraged. Let's... Uh, Let's come to Isaiah. We're up to Isaiah chapter 6 today, but before that I'd just like to read a verse from Isaiah 66. And uh, in that, um, God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So let's pray that God will help us to be those sorts of people. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that you'll speak to us today through your word, uh, that you'll reveal yourself uh to us in, in wonderful ways today and we pray that you would humble us and make us contrite in spirit and may we be amongst those that you uh, look to uh, as those who tremble at your word so help us not to hear it and just look at it but to, to look at it deeply and to let it uh, teach us and, and change us we pray in Jesus name Amen well uh, please have your Bibles open at Isaiah chapter 6 and let's read it together now uh, a wonderful passage uh, Isaiah spent the first five chapters uh, introducing his book. It's like the overture before the main part of a symphony. And uh, he's introduced all the big themes that will come throughout the rest of the book. But now we get to the, that part of it where God calls Isaiah to be his prophet and to do his work. So let's read Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains where, where it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
Now, just to recap where we've been, because it's a while since we began Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is a book that oscillates between threat and promise. Certainly in the early chapters, up to about chapter 39, there's more threat than there is promise. And then uh, from 40 to 66, there's more promise than threat. But the two are intermingled throughout. And so we have to watch for this oscillation between threat and promise. Uh, chapter 1 uh, is entirely threat. Chapter 2 lays out a great promise for those who will heed the warnings of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 1, back to the theme of threat. Uh, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, again, the promise for those who will heed God's word and return. Uh, but then the first section, this section that leads up to where we've got to today, uh, chapter 5, 1 to 30, is back to the theme of threat. It's the, the parable of the vineyard uh, that we looked at last time. And so you can see that, that there's more threat than promise in these first five chapters, which indicates to us that it's more likely that Isaiah's message will go unheeded, that his bearing of God's word to these people will not be something that affects any great change. There'll be some that listen, there'll be some that turn, but Israel or Judah is headed for judgment because they're not listening to God's word, they're ignoring the word of his prophet. Now we've seen previously that Isaiah addresses a big question. We've seen in chapter 1 that, uh, I, that the people he's speaking to, the, the, the citizens of Judah and Jerusalem, are like rebellious children, rebelling against the Father who's given them everything that they need. But God is not going to leave things that way. He promises that he will restore. And so we see that in chapter 2. Uh, the conditions that prevail in chapter 1 are not going to be left unchallenged. They will not be left unchanged. Change will come. But the big question is how? And so how will the, the design that's represented in chapter 1, the, chapter, the, the idea of them being rebellious children, how will they become a loving, contented and happy family that we see in chapter 2? How will that, uh, that, that transformation take place? Uh, the transformation that takes them from the threat of judgment to the promise of salvation, how will it come about? And the answer is found in chapter 1. It'll come through refinement, through painful refinement. And so in chapter 1, verse 25, we've seen, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross. So in the same way that impurities are taken out of metal by subjecting it to high temperatures, that will happen to God's people, Judah. Uh, and so in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, we've seen that in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. So God is going to restore his people to a condition of holiness. When? When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstain of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So notice there, heat is going to be applied. Flame and fire is going to be the means by which God refines his people and restores them. So in the same measure, heat will be applied. It will refine the people. It will punish them, but it will restore some who take the lesson to heart. So chapters 1 to 5, summarised in that way, uh, go like this. In chapter 1, Yahweh is reasoning with his people, calling them to repent, to turn away from their sin. In chapters 2 to 4, he uh, looks ahead to an ideal Zion, an ideal Jerusalem, uh, and he compares that with the present state of, of an idolatrous people, an adulterous people who have turned their back on God. So the future ideal is compared with the current conditions and it's clear that the future ideal is one that should inspire real change in the present. 
So Jerusalem or Zion, we need to remember that that's a code for God's people. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem was built right at the heart of mountains. Mount Zion was the temple, which was the visible symbol of God living among his people. So when we read of Jerusalem or Zion, we're meant to read that as code. This is a, a code for God's people, God living among them. And so this first section ends with the lament for Yahweh's vineyard. And Isaiah the prophet pronounces woe the woe of judgment on the vineyard. What more could Yahweh have done for his vineyard? Well, the answer is nothing. He couldn't have done anything more to provide for it and to protect it. And so Yahweh's people, his vineyard that he's planted, are going to be uprooted and destroyed. So we find threat and we find promise. We find the threat of judgment, we find the promise of salvation, and we find this oscillation all the way through the book, but particularly in those first five chapters. And that threat is something that's going to be happening soon. But the promises, many of them, are going to come later. They're off in the distance. They're not something that can be uh, predicted entirely clearly. They're something that will happen because Yahweh always keeps his word. But many of the promises are going to come much later. And so the threat, um, the, the immediate problem that they face is that God is going to judge them by bringing another nation against them. Just as he promised in Deuteronomy, if they didn't heed his word he would get people of strange uh, a strange language a language strange to them would come and punish them and and take them away god forecast that through the um through moses and so we see in isaiah 5 verses 24 to 29 that the sin of the people of judah and jerusalem is that they've rejected the law of the lord of hosts well god won't be rejected his word is meant to be kept and so therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against his people he will raise a signal for nations far away because God's in charge of the nations. He's sovereign over the whole world. And these other nations will come and do his bidding and execute his judgment. So quickly, speedily they come like young lions. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. So what's foreseen there in chapter 5 is that God's people are going to be displaced from their land by exile. They'll be overcome by a foreign military power and they'll be carried unwillingly away. And this is God's way of, of punishing them for giving up on his word and for, for forsaking the benefits of living in his land. But the promise that God holds out, we've seen hints of it in chapter 2 and chapter 4 already, but there's a much more complete version of it uh, later on in the book. And so we, as the book ends... Isaiah finishes this way. Isaiah 66, 22 to 23 say, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now we're at a really critical turning point in the book here in Isaiah chapter 6 because God's actually announcing his program not just for Judah and Jerusalem but for the whole world a world that's been racked by sin, a world that's been uh, terribly tarnished by the effects of the fall, where we have this inbuilt tendency to want to do things our way, which leads us to rebel against God and his word. God's word is good and it's true, and it will always yield a good harvest of, of fruit in our lives if we heed it and obey it. But it's our natural tendency to, to prefer things our way, and we see that writ large in the book of Isaiah, where people's the people of God in those days turned their back on him. But Isaiah doesn't finish with that. It goes all the way ahead to where God is going to restore a perfectly new creation where there'll be no hint of sin, no hint of rebellion, no hint of those things that make life so difficult in the present. And so we look ahead and we see that there's a new heavens uh, to which the nations are going to come. It's not just going to be for Jerusalem and Judah. It's going to be for the whole world. And so in Isaiah 6, we see God calling Isaiah 
to be the means by which he announces this whole new program and what he's about to accomplish in the world. So this is a turning point. This is a significant moment in Bible history that we're about to see. And so this promise is to come later, but uh, there's promises and there's threats. And there's a threat which will come later as well. So the promise is of a new heavens and a new earth, but it won't be for everyone. And so the whole book of Isaiah finishes with these very stern words, chapter 66, verse 24. So the, the nations that have been gathered, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Now you might know that Jesus quoted those words himself. Uh, people who are cast away from God's presence where worms won't die and fire won't be put out. It's a terrifying vision of judgment, of being eternally under God's wrath. And so this is really serious stuff that we're dealing with here today. Decisions that will be made in relation to this passage will determine whether your eternal destiny is to live with God forever or to live without God forever. And so the destiny of all those who choose not to rebel against Yahweh and his word is, is to share in the, the new heavens and the new earth. But the destiny for those who continue to rebel, and they're the sorts of people that Isaiah was speaking to, he was warning them that they had to quit their rebellion or else they would meet these dire consequences. So there's threat and there's promise both now and later. But, the, but, but, but there is the very real prospect of ending up on the wrong side of God when things really count at the end of all things. It's a prospect too awful to be contemplated. Now, into a world that's subject to that judgment, God calls Isaiah to be his representative. And so we see as we go back to Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah has a vision of the true king. Now, look at how it begins. In the year that King Isaiah died, Zion's transformation is being is being commenced with God's call of Isaiah. And when does that take place? Well, we see the historical setting here in verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died. Isaiah prophesied through the reign of four kings and it commenced in the year that King Isaiah died. Now, we know when that was. Uh, he reigned from about 791 to 740 BC, so a little over 50 years uh, Isaiah was on the throne. And that was a time of prosperity in uh, the nation of Judah. It was a time when the Egyptian nation, its powerful southern uh, enemy, uh, they'd been weakened. And, and so Egyptian, Egypt didn't pose much of a threat to little Judah. And at the same time, Assyria, the great dominant power to the northeast, uh, it had been distracted, but it was starting to wake up from its distraction. So in that power vacuum, Judah flourished under Isaiah's reign. And so all the conditions that we read in chapter 1 to 5 of, um, of wealth and prosperity and of uh, women who enjoyed fancy clothes and, 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 uh, and businessmen who liked to add one property to another, even at the expense of the poor, all that took place at a time when Yahweh was being ignored and when it was safe to go about your business because the two neighbouring superpowers were not, a, not in a position to do anything about it. But in the year that King Isaiah died, and ended that long reign, Assyria was starting to waken up. And Assyria became known as the symbol of terror and tyranny in the Near East for more than three centuries. It was a, a powerful nation to have as your enemy. 
and so I've shown these pictures before, but they're um, relief carvings from the uh, from the bedroom of one of Assyria's great kings, and it shows his armies going out and conquering opposing nations, uh, running down their walls and, and, and overrunning entire cities and taking people captive and skinning people alive. Awful things took place. And this is starting to, to loom over the horizon. The same year that King Isaiah died, Assyria is starting to wake from its slumber. And it may be that Judah's party is over. So the historical setting in the year that King Isaiah died, well, we can read more about that in Second Chronicles chapter 26. So you need to go backwards and forwards from the prophets to the, uh, to the history books to see uh, just what's going on. Now, when you read the history books, if you read the, about the kings of Israel, you'll read that the northern kingdom after the split of the nation into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, all of the kings in the north were bad kings. Uh, not one of them honoured Yahweh and his ways. Some of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah were good kings, and Isaiah was one of them. So for 52 years he reigned, and he reigned pretty well. He was a good king, but his reign didn't finish well. And so in Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses 1 to 23, we read about uh, uh, how having done what was right in the sight of the Lord, having set himself to seek God, um, and, and how he'd prospered under God's, God's good hand, in verses 16 to 23, we read about his sad end. And so chapter, 16, uh, chapter 26 of Second Chronicles, at verse 16, we read of Isaiah that when he was strong, he grew proud. To his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple to the, to, of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valour, and they withstood King Isaiah and said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honour from the Lord God. So Azariah and these other priests withstood the king. The king wanted to do something. The king was feeling a bit prosperous and a bit religious that day. And he took upon himself religious duties that were not his to do. These are a privilege that existed only for Aaron and his family. And so they warn him. They say, you've got to leave. And so good King Isaiah, for whatever reason, decided he would go beyond his, his role description. He went in to offer incense in the temple. Verses 19 to 20 go on. Then Isaiah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. Now, a leprous man was not welcome in the temple precincts. He was unclean. And in a stroke, because of his complacency and disobedience, King Isaiah had been made unclean. He was unfit to be there. Now, we read in Exodus 28 that uh, all of the high priests, when they were appointed to office, would be given special clothing. Uh, we read that they'll have a plate made of pure gold and engraved on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. 
So in the very place that the high priest had this engraved uh, signet saying holy to the Lord, in that very place, King Isaiah was struck with leprosy that made him unholy, unclean. That was God's immediate punishment for him usurping the privilege that was not his, who only belonged to the, uh, to the priest. And so we read the consequence. Second Chronicles 26 verse 21, And King Isaiah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So this is the context in which Isaiah's call comes. They've got a looming foreign adversary breathing down their neck, about to judge them under Yahweh's hand for their prosperity, which has been gained unjustly and which has been gained even while they're ignoring God and his ways. And Isaiah's prophetic ministry begins at a time when their good king has been judged, struck with leprosy, and he ends his days unclean and excluded from Yahweh's presence. This is not a great environment for God's people to be working with. So Isaiah died unclean for disregarding God's word. And in that, he's just like the people he ruled. Because for centuries, they'd been disregarding God's word too. And so chapter 5, verse 24, we saw it before. They've rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One. And really, in miniature, that's what Isaiah did too. Now, Isaiah, the prophet, not to be confused with King Uzziah, Isaiah was allowed a glimpse of heaven. In the year that King Isaiah died, he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the, robe of his temp- the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the throne of Yahweh is typically associated with judgment. So if you look in Psalm 9, verse 4 and 7 and, and other places as well, to see Yahweh on his throne means he's about to execute judgment. To speak of him as being high and lifted up is to speak of him as being exalted in power. The seraphim that surround the throne are literally the burning ones, so there's more fire. This is another image of, of judgment. The seraphim were destroyers or protectors. And their song is holy, holy, holy. Three times, holy, holy, holy. Now, if Yahweh is not being honoured in Judah, at least he's being honoured in heaven as holy and there's a great contrast with the disregard with which his people treat him on earth now to speak of Yahweh three times as holy 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 like that in the Hebrew language to speak of something in the plural you repeated it you said it again we do that in Aboriginal Australian actually so if you think of a place like Wagga Wagga whatever Wagga is uh, Wagga Wagga is a way of saying there's more than one Wagga there uh, I live in the Boar Boar Shire, so whatever a boar was, Boar Boar means lots of boars. Uh, we used to live in the Bullen Bullen Shire. A bullen is a lyrebird. Bullen Bullen means place of many lyrebirds. Well, in the Hebrew language, if they wanted to say lots of something, um, in Genesis 14, for example, they're talking about a land where there's lots of pits. So literally in Hebrew, it's pits pits, which means lots of pits. Uh, when we're told that Solomon had lots and lots of gold and it was solid gold, uh, the way that that's expressed is gold, gold. Uh, that means not only lots of gold, but gold of ex- a special quality as well. Now, when God, when Yahweh is described as holy, 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 that's the only place in the entire Bible where something is given this threefold description. Um, 
That means Yahweh is as holy as holy can be. It means he's incomparable. There is nothing in his creation that can be compared to him for his holiness. Now, holy, when we say that Yahweh is holy, that's the quality that's attached to God's name more than any other attribute. We can speak of God as being a God of love or a God of wrath or a God of vengeance or a God of um, mercy or whatever. And they're all true. But the attribute of God that is attached to his name more than any other is holy. Yahweh is holy. Now, holiness is the quality that sets God utterly apart from his world that he created. Yahweh is holy and nothing else is. It means that he's glorious in his purity. He is uncontaminated and he is uncontaminatable. He's perfect in a way that we can barely use words to describe. Alec Matea, in his wonderful commentary on these words, he says that to describe Yahweh as holy, holy, holy is to speak of his total and unique moral majesty. Now just let that sink in for a moment because this is beyond my ability to describe. But the heavenly dwelling that, that Isaiah has the privilege of seeing into and the heavenly beings that surround the throne of Yahweh, high and lifted up, their song is of a God who is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God of hosts. Lord of hosts means Lord of heaven's armies. He's in charge of the entire heavenly realm. He's a God who is glorious in purity, unique in moral majesty. The prophet Habakkuk says of Yahweh that he is of purer eyes than to see evil. He cannot look at wrong. His holiness reacts completely against impurity. And any honest human confronted with an image of Yahweh in his moral majesty would have to say, I'm impure. It would have to be an incredibly humbling experience. And so in verse 4 we read that this vision of Yahweh in his presence in, in heaven, it shakes everything. It shakes the foundations. The foundations of thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. This is a terrifying experience for the prophet. This reminds us of Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, and when... Um, when the Ten Commandments were given and when Solomon commissioned the temple. And in Habakkuk 3, we speak of the entire nations being shaken. When Yahweh speaks, it's as though creation responds and trembles. This is God, the transcendent holy king, and he's about to judge. And he's surrounded by these burning ones and the temple's shaking. How would you feel? How would you feel if you were in Isaiah's shoes? He was terrified. Now, if you've got some concept in your mind that God's this soft, endlessly forgiving, sort of nice old uncle sitting in his slippers and his dressing gown on some sort of throne arrangement in heaven. You need to enlarge your picture of God. We've got to take God as he has revealed himself, not according to our imaginations. J.B. Phillips wrote a wonderful trans translation of the New Testament back in the Second World War, but he also wrote another book with a very wonderful title. He says, Your God is Too Small. What's your vision of God? What do you think of God? I've been in too many Bible studies where people have said things like, well, when I think of God, I like to think of him as 
And we only ever like to think of God as being our pal or something that really is not too threatening. Isaiah was terrified when he was granted this vision of God. And so he says, woe is me. And so we've had six woes in chapter 5 and here's the seventh woe. And it's a woe pronounced not on the nation of Judah, but on the prophet himself. Isaiah calls a woe on himself. Woe is me, he says. Sometimes you'll hear people say that and they'll trivialise it. You know, how's your day been? Oh, woe is me. They'll say, no, 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 that's nonsense. No, Isaiah is pronouncing a word of judgment on himself. He doesn't feel fit to stand in God's presence. He's been given a, a vision that overcomes him. Now, the word woe, it's an impassioned expression. It's an expression of intense grief and despair. Isaiah is being brought undone by this. He says, I'm lost. Now, that word lost is, is a word that could be used of, of silence, the silence of death. It means Isaiah's been struck dumb. He's got nothing to say, just like the silence that comes from a grave. You don't expect a grave to say anything. Isaiah has got no words. He's been struck dumb by his vision of Yahweh. He says, I'm ruined. It's, it's a word that attaches itself elsewhere to ruined cities after a, a battle's been fought. John Calvin, the uh, great Reformation scholar and, and pastor and commentator, he said that Isaiah was so terrified by seeing God that he expected immediate destruction, not of the city, but of himself. So Isaiah, the prophet to be, is brought to be painfully aware of his personal sin in the presence of Yahweh and his holy, holy, holiness. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and unclean lips reflect an unclean heart because we speak the overflow of what the heart has in it. He's aware of his own unholiness, and he's aware of his people's unholiness. He says, I live with unholy people. He realises that he's unclean and he's, un he's unfit for God's lethal presence. If you want to see something about that, then look back in Leviticus 10, where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were, were consumed with fire for offering unauthorised fire in Yahweh's presence. That's how Isaiah is feeling. He's thinking, it's going to happen to me. He's seen the true king. In the year that Isaiah died, the king who died unholy, Isaiah sees the true king, or at least the corner of his garment. So what do you think of God, really? When you're alone with your thoughts, when you're not pretending to be something else that... You, Perhaps deep down you know you're not. What do you think of God? Does your vision of God include a vision of his perfection and his holiness and his fitness to judge you as a sinner because you fall so far short of all that he is? Now, of course, we've got to say more than that because God is love, God is mercy, but he's not less than this. And Isaiah the prophet was terrified in his presence. And we need to factor that in when we think of God and of his rightness and his fitness to judge us as sinful people, people that have played our part in rebelling against him and disregarding his word. Now, you might be wondering about seeing God because elsewhere in the scriptures we're told that that can't happen. Um, all Isaiah sees is a part of God's robe. Words have failed him. Uh, he's given a vision of something that's beyond words, really. You'll notice that the seraphim cover their eyes in God's presence 
But in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. So when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, he said, don't let anybody else come by. It'll kill them to see me. Exodus 33 verse 20, uh, Yahweh says to Moses, man shall not see me and live. First Timothy chapter 6 Verses 15 and 16, we read there of the blessed and only sovereign king, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So what are we to believe? Is it, did, did God reveal himself and was Isaiah allowed to see him in, in chapter 6? Uh, are these other verses for, for other people? I think the answer is that Isaiah was given a very limited appreciation of, of, of a visual perception of God. Uh, God is an invisible spirit. He's a God of limitless glory and majesty. And it's impossible for sinful human people to to be in his presence and to see him fully. It's beyond us. Isaiah was given some sort of limited visionary experience, which was then adapted to his comprehension, his ability to understand it. And it was given to him so that he could share it with others like us. So in verse 6, we find there that a seraph flies from the altar. Isaiah thinks he's undone. He thinks he's ruined and finished. But one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tong with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your mouth. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah has a, a vision of the heavenly temple, the heavenly uh, throne room of God, of which the earthly temple was just a, an earthly construction and representation. Uh, but fire is always associated with God's wrath. You'll read in Genesis 3 where he uh, sets up flaming ones to guard the way to the tree of, uh, of life uh, in the Garden of Eden. In Leviticus 11, we read of God's uh, fire and God's wrath. Um, it, it speaks of his unapproachable holiness. And so the seraph flies from the altar. The altar is the means by which God deals with people's sins when they offer sacrifices on it. Uh, the altar is how God deals with people's sins. Uh, Isaiah hadn't earned his forgiveness. He hadn't worked his way up to it. He was aware of his sinfulness and it took an act of God's grace for him to be put right, to be for his sins to be atoned for. And so God acts in keeping with the confession that Isaiah makes. He confesses his sinfulness and God responds and God cleanses him. And so he's had this vision. He's aware of his imperfection. God cleanses him by sending a seraph to touch his lips. The, the means by which he'll speak God's word have to be purified. And it took this coal from the altar. His guilt's removed, he's been his sins have been atoned for, he's been reconciled to God, and it was accomplished with the fire that God spoke of in chapter 1. So God will use fire to judge, and he'll use, God, uh, he'll use fire to restore, depending on our response to his word. And so this atonement that was won there for Isaiah was the payment of the price that God's holiness and justice required. Uh, the debt that Isaiah's sin had racked up had now been paid and it turned aside God's wrath at his sinfulness. And so Isaiah, Isaiah is commissioned for Yahweh's service. He's been cleansed uh, in these previous verses uh, and he's, been, he's now been commissioned for God's service because God needs a messenger with clean lips in verse 8. And so then Yahweh says uh, in verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so having been cleansed and having been transformed, Isaiah replies, Here am I, send me. He willingly heeds the call. 
But the question is, will Judah heed the call of Yahweh through the prophet? Will God's people come back to his word? Will they be restored? And so Yahweh tells Isaiah the prophet that his message is going to be a difficult one to take because people won't like it. So this is what the message is. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah's ministry is going to have the effect in verse 10 of making the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, Barry Webb, the Australian commentator, says that Isaiah's message is described in terms of its effect more than its content. Isaiah is being told he's going to go to ungrateful, hard-hearted people who are going to ignore him. It's going to, his message will harden callous hearts. And his message is going to lead to people ignoring him at their peril to the, and his ministry will continue until the nation will be devastated. He's got hard words to say to an ungrateful, unwilling, unheeding people. He's pronouncing Yahweh's judgment. Now we might think, oh, that's a bit rough. Uh, How does this work? Well, you see, the thing is, God plays a part in hardening people's hearts, but people participate in it willingly, and you get the example of that in Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, who several times we're told he hardened his own heart, And other times we're told that God hardened his heart. And so Isaiah goes out with God's word for any who will believe, but the effect of ignoring it and rebelling against it is to contribute to your own hardening of heart. Isaiah, as you read through his book, you'll see that he offers repentance repeatedly and he holds out great hope for people's future if only they'll turn and heed God's word. He asks people to trust God over and over and over again, but He's met with persistent refusal. In fact, the people end up saying, you're just talking like a child. So these are people who have been having God's word preached to them for a very long time. His people, the people he preaches to have had God's word for centuries. So the later prophet, Zechariah, a couple of hundred years after Isaiah, he says this, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. Isaiah is one of the prophets that Zechariah is referencing. He's saying to his people several hundred years later, don't be like those ones before who ignored the prophet Isaiah and look where it got them, into exile. So Isaiah is told to go to people with God's word that they've been rejecting over and over and over again through their forefathers all the way back to when it was first given and even his own hearers are going to add their own sin and rejection and rebellion to that of their ancestors. Our hearts are very hard and it's very easy for them to rebel against God's word because we really do deep down like things our way. Those words that God commissioned Isaiah with there um, were quoted also by Jesus and the apostles in their own ministry and Jesus experienced that same rejection in his work on earth. Uh, His word was rejected in the same way that the prophet Isaiah's had been. Isaiah after Psalms is the most referenced Old Testament book in the New Testament and chapter 6 verses 9 to 10 of Isaiah is the most quoted section in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it several times uh, uh, John and and, uh, and Paul use it as well to describe the effect of the preaching of the gospel 
Some will listen, some will believe, some will turn and obey, but most will reject and continue in rebellion. C.S. Lewis, as you'd expect, has something helpful to say on this subject. He says that there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Lewis concludes that passage in his book, The Great Divorce, all that are in hell, choose it. So is your heart hard against God and his word today, or is it tender? Are you wanting to hear the word and to act on what's revealed to you in the word? Or are you harbouring rebellion and saying, no, I will do it my way? Because in the end, that way will be judged. In the end, God will say, all right then, if you didn't want me now, you can do without me in eternity. And that'll be a fair transaction for a holy God. So verses 8 to 13, uh, Isaiah's been called, he's been cleansed, he's been commissioned, and now he's about to be commissioned. Uh, he asks the question, how long? It's really like saying, what's the world coming to? And the answer is, until Jerusalem's destroyed. So he's going to keep prophesying, and, and because people turn down his offer, uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed, Judah will be exiled, but hope is not extinguished. You see, God's a faithful God. What he promises, he will fulfil. And so verse 13b, he says uh, that a stump will remain when it is felled. Uh, the stump that's been burned and, and not only burned but cut down, it will remain. And so the burned and felled tree has holy life in it. Now that when it, when it says there the, uh, the seed, that, that's the offspring. Uh, so this is a stump which is representative of a remnant of God's people. Uh, there will be some who respond and from those who respond there will arise a new people and uh, this is language that's later used for the stump of Jesse in chapter 11 which is the father of David from whose line the Lord Jesus came so God has plans for his people Judah he's not going to give up on them completely those that continue in rebellion will be exiled and judged but those who turn and repent and are faithful will form part of this remnant from which God is going to rebuild the nation. So where does that leave us? What about us? Isaiah saw Yahweh high and lifted up. He confessed his sin when he realised that he just did not measure up to this incredible picture of the holy, holy, holy God. Having confessed, he was cleansed painfully, but he was cleansed with a coal from the altar. He was cleansed and he was called into God's service and commissioned. Now that should be true of everybody that owns God as Lord and owns Jesus as Saviour. You see, we have seen the King. Not quite in the same way that Isaiah did, but we have seen the King. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on and he says, The Word is the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So John says, I've seen God. I've seen the one who was there from the beginning. And John says, I'm telling you these things so that you can believe. So when we read the gospel, when we read the eyewitness account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, we're hearing from people that saw it and wrote it down. Having, having seen it, they wanted to pass it on. 
So in a sense, when we believe what the gospel writers have written, what the New Testament writers have written about their experience of the Lord Jesus, we too have seen the King. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. John writes as an eyewitness, we have seen the King. And so we too, like Isaiah, need to confess our sins in the face of this King, this holy King. We need to be cleansed of them. We need to heed the call of God on our life and we need to be prepared to go with his message. That's what it means to be a disciple. So what we see in Isaiah is the pattern that, is, that must be a part of our experience too. We come to see the king, we confess our sins and our complete inadequacy in the light of his holiness. We're cleansed because God is faithful to do as he's promised and then we heed his call and we go with his message. We go with the word knowing that we'll be going to people that will by and large reject it. But we go because we're called to and we leave the results to our holy God. Now holiness is not tried. It's not something that we can afford to be flippant about. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we need to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is holiness any sort of a factor in your life? Do you long to be holy? Pray for the help of the Holy Spirit with that. Leon Morris, the Australian Bible scholar, he said, you can drift into sin, but you can't drift into holiness. In other words, it will require decisions and, and a turning away from things. It will require active participation with God and his spirit if you want to become holy in the way that you're called to be. But C.S. Lewis says, and we'll finish with this, he says, how little people know, he was writing, to a letter, writing a letter to a lady in America who had commented in her previous letter about the, the evident holiness of the man was that who was the minister in her church. And Lewis replied, he said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, and perhaps like you, I've met it only once, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? Isaiah saw Yahweh high and lifted up. And that vision of God terrified him because it reminded him of his sinfulness, of his uncleanness, of his unholiness. He confessed his sin and he was cleansed from his sin. And having been cleansed, he was called and commissioned to go with God's word to people. And that can be us too. But we need to have a high regard for Yahweh and his holiness and to seek his help in making us more and more holy like his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray for that now. Father, these are, these are wonderful words. These are words full of, of deep places that we can barely go and yet we know they speak truly and rightly of you, our, our saviour God, our holy, holy, holy God. We pray that you would teach us real reverence for your person and your name. We pray that you would teach us to be people who love you and who respond uh, in repentance and true faith and who respond also with a great willingness to be agents of your work in this world, bearers of your word to an unwilling, ungrateful and rebellious word, world. Please help us not to be unwilling and ungrateful and heedless of your word. Help us to, to take it to heart and to live with it at the core of our being so that we are people with whom you are pleased. We ask that you would make us holy by your Holy Spirit so that we can live lives that are worthy of the cleansing and atoning grace that you displayed to us in your Son when he died for our sins on the cross. Please help us, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
we'll all look forward to seeing you next time. Uh, pray hard and press on until then.